Welcome to episode 77 of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and my guest today is perhaps one of the most courageous women I've had the opportunity to talk to on this podcast. Diana Ostrake is an Iraq war veteran who enlisted like both of her parents before her. But when she was commanded to run over an Iraqi child to keep her convoy rolling and keep her battle buddies safe, she was confronted with a choice she never thought she'd have to make. Torn between God's call to love her enemy and her country's command to be willing to kill, Diana chose to wage peace in a place of war. For the remainder of her tour of duty, Diana sought to be a peacemaker, leading to an unlikely yet beautiful friendship with an Iraqi family. In this episode, Diana shares her story of putting love first and following God's call to love our enemies. The ripple effect of her choice to be a peacemaker has followed her home, where she now is an activist who inspires others to choose love over fear. Her story will challenge you, but ultimately show you what it looks like to follow the way of the cross. Okay, we've like had a conversation for 15 minutes and we haven't officially started. So I feel like I should officially welcome you to the Her Story Speaks podcast, Diana. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Well, I'm glad we had a little pre-chat. Like I said, I'm a little starved for human interaction. So this is so nice that you just sat and visited with me. And I feel like I've got to know you a little bit. So welcome. Thank you for being here today. I actually, we were supposed to record last week and I rescheduled because we were decided to take a trip for our anniversary, but then we canceled because of COVID. So today, Diana, we're going to get started. And I just want you to tell us who you are in your day-to-day. Tell me who you are, where you live, all of that. I am a Midwestern mom 90% of the time to two 12, wait, yes, 12 and 13-year-old boys. And I'm a peacemaker. I think there's so many ways that, you know, whenever you're at a party and someone's like, who are you? You get the little flutters like, oh my, (laughs) like, what am I, what am I really? But I think that it's okay to have the truest true be said, whether you feel like there's any bigger reason behind it. And I think that God really put me on this planet to be a peacemaker So I oftentimes tell people I'm a soldier turned peacemaker because it puts a a tiny sliver of my contradiction and my story that says I'm not either or, and this is not an easy place to be. So I'm a peacemaker. I'm a mom. I'm an activist. I'm an author. And I really, really love my community. And I also, I don't know when you start doing former You know, you never say you're a former mother, but I also was a combat veteran in the Iraq war. Uh, I was a combat medic for three to 97 days. And I was a sexual assault nurse who collects forensic evidence and testifies in court alongside victim survivors and also shows up in the emergency room and tells them you matter and you are going to heal. And what was done against you is the abnormal thing. Like you're normal. And you're going to, we're going to stand by you and give you what you need because you matter. So those are all the things that I have done. But primarily I, and especially during COVID, this has been a lot of momming, as you know. Yes. Yes. And how old are your boys? They are in sixth and seventh grade. They're barely a year apart. Okay. And they've never, uh, the youngest is adopted from Ethiopia, but they've never had a memory without each other because the youngest came home when the oldest was like, he had maybe barely turned two, but he had no like two-year-old skills. He was basically, I had like two one-year-olds for a while. Yeah. And hearing just you give that brief intro, your story has a lot of parts. I mean, we could talk the whole hour about the adoption journey with you. We could talk about being 
the nurse that you were with the sexual trauma victim. But today we are going to focus, we're going to kind of laser in a little bit on the story that you share in Waging Peace, your newest book, One One Soldier's Story of Putting Love First. And it's just the theme for this year of the podcast is finding beauty in the broken. And your book, it couldn't be more perfect for that. I mean, I finished reading it this morning and I could just tear up. I mean, it was so good. I usually, I mean, I love memoirs. I love reading for this podcast. I've never thought, oh, I just want to go read that again. But yours, I felt like I could because there's just so much there and so many truths that you learn along the way. And it was so, so good. And I I encourage listeners, this is one to read. This is one to give as a gift. And we'll talk about it today, but we're not going to obviously share every part of it because I want people to still read it. So let's start out, even though your book doesn't really start out with your childhood, I always ask my guests, like, let's, let's talk a little bit, share a little bit about your origin story your faith growing up, um, just kind of where you want to start with that. I grew up in a small northern Minnesota town, pine trees and lakes, and about a town of 8,000 people. And both my parents had served in the military and they had met in the military. So it was a very romantic version of what I grew up with. And I we went to a little country Baptist church. And in some ways it was the sweetest growing up. And also as you grow, as you grow older, you realize that you really grew up with a culture Mm -hmm. and my culture was pretty black and white that if the church down the road didn't baptize the way we did or sing the same songs as us, that they maybe weren't true Christians. And if someone didn't mirror our patriotism by serving, I was a third generation army veteran, then maybe they didn't really love America. So as I, as I grew up in the world, I realized that I had been given some pretty black and white us versus them viewpoints, but I never really had to experience what it felt like to be the person at the other end of my beliefs, my nationalism or my theology, all that changed when I was 23, which at 23, you think you're an adult because I graduated college. I was a hospice oncology nurse. Um, but looking back, I know at 23, I was just a baby. Like I, yeah, yeah. I hadn't really tested any of these beliefs. I had just been handed them. And, the, and I walked through the world like I knew it all because my people told me that we were right. And we kind of held all the goodness on our side. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I mean, when you're just presented with those things and it's just, it doesn't really affect you. It's like, okay, that's easy enough just to believe. But when you're faced with the people on the other end, it changes everything. So back up a little bit before you were 23, when you're 17, you decided to enlist. Can you share a little bit about that decision and what brought you there and what, what happened after that? In my, in my 17-year-old mind, which now I'm like, where were the adults? <laughs> like, where were they? Um, in my 17-year-old mind, I wanted to be a medical missionary in Africa. The AIDS epidemic was happening at that time. And I really felt like if at that time, AIDS was a terminal illness. And so the medical, you know, was like, well, if we can't save them, then we don't, we're not, we're not going to do much. Yeah. And so I was like, I had, I must have had something in me that was like, that's not right. right. <laughs> I'm going to go there because they deserve to be cared for, whether they are going to die or they're going to live. I wanted to be somebody who was caring for those folks. So I had a VW bug and somehow in my brain, I thought joining the Army National Guard to pay for college to become a doctor was a good fit. But 
truthfully, just talking about my family culture, it was pre-internet so where you couldn't just Google anything. And I knew more people who had enlisted in the military after high school in order to gain a skill, gain a job, and get access to college. I knew more people who had joined the military than I ever knew had been to college. Okay. okay. So in my world, that's that was familiar. It was more intimidating to go to college than it was to sign up for the military. So yeah. did you ever think at all that you would be going into active combat when you signed up? I didn't because at the time, the National Guard, and it still is, it's a state-run militia. Mm-hmm. So they are supposed to show up for the state and the Army Reservists are the ones who are shadowed the active army and they're the okay. ones who are supposed to be supporting the army, even if it is overseas. So at that point in time, the Army National Guard had not been called up since Vietnam. And okay. 30 years. So it wasn't a possibility at okay. that And so when I joined, most of the guys in my unit were like old guys getting away from the family for a weekend. They had Mm -hmm. never trained for war. That was not what the National Guard was for. They did sandbags if there was something in the state. So I can't even imagine that day on Valentine's Day when you get the call that you got to go. So tell me about that. You share it in your book. I want to hear from you, like how best you can describe just how you felt with that. Yeah, I remember I was living with two of my roommates, college roommates, and the phone rings on Valentine's Day and I'm a single college girl. And so I was expecting a surprise, but not getting called up to be deployed. And I remember I answered the phone and my sergeant said, you know, specialist Robert Shaw, you are being activated to be deployed for the global oh war on terror. Put your things in storage, break your lease. I cannot tell you when you will be back or how long you will be gone. Write a will and report for duty in 30 days. And I remember holding the phone to my cheek and, and like my brain was computing what he was telling me. But I remember not taking the phone away from my ear, even after he had hung up, because I knew that once I put that phone down, my life would never be the same. That at 23, this was like a before and after. And I just, it couldn't, I didn't want to step into this future. Yeah. That I didn't want, and I didn't know what it would ask of me, but I knew I would never get to be the same. And so I remember the phone just felt like a rock, but I held it to my ear because once I put it down, I would have to move forward. I would have mm. to write a will and move out and not know when or if I was coming home. And the bombs were dropping on TV. So it's not like I didn't know where it's going, even though he wasn't telling me. Yeah. And I see, I mean, you're getting emotional. I can see your eyes tearing up just talking about it now. And I just, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes or 23 year old. I mean, just a bit older than my daughter, like my oldest. I can't even get my mind around that, that never, that was not on your radar. And now you're being asked to go into active combat. You're a nurse, you're a young, you're a young girl being asked to go. So you go through the motions to get ready and you had 30 days. Is that what you said? Oh, good gosh. Yeah. Okay. So then take me to your flying, you're on the plane, you're heading into Iraq. You know, I'm sure, you know, at that point you're going into Iraq, right? 
Yeah, when they okay. handed us the uh, desert camel fatigues, <laughs> we we put two and two together. Yeah. So yeah. the plane was flying in and we were landing at night. And I remember the plane landed and all of a sudden they opened it. It was just like this blast of hot air just engulfing. It's almost like when you're in a sauna and it's so hot, you can't really take a breath. Like the air feels like it's choking you. And I remember that was when they had thought there were weapons of mass destruction and that Saddam was using chemical warfare. And so we assumed that he would use chemical warfare on us. And so I remember the sergeant yelling, get everybody your atropine injectors. And so if we, if we had been gassed, then this injector would theoretically give you a little bit of time. And I remember um, passing those out in the dark and shoving them into each one of my soldiers' hands. And just at the end of it, I just remember like taking this breath and being like, um, I'm in war. And I just finished my first medic task to keep my soldiers alive. And I remember taking a breath in relief, but also feeling the weight that I knew these soldiers families and somehow the little medic bag on my back it was my job to make sure they stayed alive and I knew a war is when people try to kill each other until one side surrenders so we weren't like this is a killing field and I think all of those things were just crushing together in that moment that blast of before and after I was now in a war and I remember watching our plane taxi away and I remember looking at it and for the first time I thought man if my team doesn't win I will never get to get back on a plane and go home and then we got on this this bus to bring us to our tents and it was like midnight hot and I remember I just like opened up a little bit of the curtain on the bus to peek out I remember the bus driver leaned back and he was like, hey, keep the curtains closed. You don't want to give a sniper an easy last shot of the night. Gosh. And I remember being like, I am not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. And that was that was my first night. And it was a before and after. And you're just different. And I know you share this in the book and I am bringing it up because it's also in the panel of the book. Otherwise, I wouldn't want to give away. There's so much in the book and I'm there's I'm not giving it away by sharing these little bits. But I feel like this was a real turning point for you. I'm sure you would agree when they gave you a briefing or orders about a child being thrown in front of you and the orders would be to run over that child. And then that night you really wrestled with God. So can you share a little bit about what they told you, your wrestling and that turning point for you? It was, we were going to be uh, moving into enemy territory the next day. And so when a unit takes all their people and all their trucks, it's called a convoy. So we were, it was late at night and we were getting our instructions for the next day on how we're going to do this. And anyways, at the very end of it, the sergeant adds, so everybody's a little droopy. It's a little, we're tired. It's hot. And all of a sudden at the very end, the sergeant says, it's an enemy tactic to push little Iraqi kids in front of American convoys in order to slow the trucks. And then they ambush the soldiers at the rear. Hmm. He's like, I hope you understand your duty to keep the convoy rolling at all costs tomorrow. And he said, if you aren't able to do your duty and keep your battle buddies safe by keeping it going, I want you to stand up now and identify yourself. Hmm. 
And I remember it was like the words were suspended in the air. Like I had heard them, but I couldn't believe them. Yeah. Like I couldn't accept what he was saying. And before I knew what I was I going to stand up and identify myself or was I going to say, yes, I'll do it. Before I had figured out what I was going to do, all of a sudden he just yelled dismissed. And then everybody stood up and the moment was broke. And I remember walking back to my tent um, and it was dark and the stars were out. They're like there's nothing like a desert starry night. Yeah. It's this bigger than bigger experience. And I remember I, I just had like eight hours to decide because we were rolling out the next morning. I remember just laying down on my cot and feeling like, I was like, God, like I already signed the line. I, you know, my faith and my culture and my family all believe that this was, this was okay, you know, to take a life for my country was ultimately to take a life for God And this was awful, but this is part of being a soldier. So, but, but it just wasn't sitting right with me. Like it was just screaming in my chest that no, I, I was just like, you know, between me and God, like I cannot say I run, I, you know, whose life will I protect and whose life will I take? Right. right. I had grown up pretty hard on the pro-life movement. And so you share that in your book, which I really appreciate because that's what I wrestle with. I mean, that's, the sanctity of life yeah, yeah. Thing and a little child. And I just remember just tears going down my cheeks. And I remember whispering, oh God, oh God, help. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of it, I just heard this still soft voice. And I don't know how other people hear God, but I just like knew that I knew that I knew that this, this was the divine. And I just heard this still soft voice say, but I love them, Diana. I love them too. And in a minute, like all the tension just melted away because I knew that I knew that I knew that that was true. Like yeah. it was the truest, most beautiful thing, but I didn't know what to do with it. Cause I was like, this is a little right. late, God. Right. Like, <laughs> could you have told me this when I was 17 or 20, like before I got here? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I had already given my loyalty to my country. Yeah. And this was the first time that I had really felt the tension between what my, uh, what God was asking of me and what my country required of me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I had already told my country that I would take a life. I already told my country I would give my life. And so now God was asking me of this, and I always thought they both wanted the same thing. Right. But I had to take back my loyalty. I feel like that was the first night that I really had to choose would I be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first and an American second, but God wasn't going to share. There were no take backs here. And so I just felt the peace that uh, no matter what happened to me, no matter what the consequence, I would never take a life between me and God, but I would give my life. I would step in front of a bullet for anyone, anytime, anywhere. Like I was going to fight for peace with sacrifice instead of bullets. Yeah. And this was early. This was not, I mean, you were there 397 days. This wasn't toward the end. This was early on. This was like our first, like moving into the war zone. And that was the first time that I had to think about the person at the other end of my gun, the person Mm -hmm. at the other end of my beliefs, my religion, my policies. And all of a sudden looked a lot different. And so there were other things that, that happened, but that was the first, you know, that's when like, that was the turning point of like, I'm doing this differently. I'm not. And you say in your book to say yes to what God was requiring of you. 
<clears throat> to say yes would require me to act in a way that would seem like betrayal to the people I love most, my country, my church, my family. It would cost me my sense of belonging in the only place that felt like home. So this was a huge decision for you. It wasn't just like, oh, I might die. It was like a betrayal you almost felt to all the people where you kind of defined who you were and what you belonged to. So going forward, um, you shared you share in your book different stories um, about that choosing piece. One of the things you take out your your um, oh, what are they called? The iron plates, the breast plates. What are they called? Black vests. Black vests. Bulletproof vests. Okay. Plates in the vest. Okay. You take those out and you take the bullets out of your gun. So for the whole time you're there, you don't have either. Do you want to share a little bit about that decision? I and was that freeing? Was that scary? What? Tell me a little bit about that. I think that my culture and my faith really had grown me up on this narrative that as long as you could do anything you want to another person, as long as it was to keep yourself safe. Now, I don't know how that happened because there's so many things in like the 10 commandments, they don't kill. Yeah. And yeah. Jesus says like, not to do it. Love your enemies. Like, I don't know how there were so many exceptions for this, mm-hmm. but that is the way that I grew up. And so I think when I, when I was in war was the first time I realized that I held something more valuable than just staying alive. Mm-hmm. Like there were things that I could do just to keep myself alive that would take away who I was. Like it was the first yeah. time that I knew that I had something more important um, than just staying alive. There was something more important to me. Right. And I had never been able to see that in, in my past. It wasn't until I was in war that I realized that dying was not the worst thing that could happen to me. Doing something to another human being that God made forever and ever, like that would break my soul. Like that would be something that I couldn't live with. And so in some ways it can sound dark, but I felt a freedom for the, like I had been raised on this faith that said that we have this life with God that never ends, that we're more than what we see. We're more than just staying alive. But this was the first time that I got a taste of it. And it was this freedom and this liberation and this peace that I never felt before. Because when you put yourself first, fear tells you that you have to do other things to other people. But fear is the worst master. It will never be satisfied. But freedom to live like Christ, that will always give you a peace. And and you can't be scared anymore. People can't scare you. Like I was... I was no longer going to allow death and fear to make me be somebody that I wasn't. Like I was going to be a person of life and not death. And to feel that freedom that nobody could scare me into being who I wasn't. Yeah. I couldn't decide what the war would ask of me. I wouldn't know if I would get shot at or killed by lunchtime, but the freedom to know how I was going to show up in that circumstance that was the true liberation. And I think we see that across history. The people who showed up in the middle of the Holocaust, they were never going to get to change things, but they did get to decide who they would be in the yeah. middle of the most awful tragedies. And I think that is this freedom to change how you live. 
And if your beliefs really matter to you, then if you believe in an eternal type of situation, then taking the life of another person has an eternal impact. And I wasn't God. I didn't make people. I was not going to do that. And I knew with, right. with the military, we have hierarchy. Like we know what's above our pay grade, our station, our rank. And I just knew that taking a life was not mine. Yeah. Did, and I'm sure, did you share with anybody there that you had no. taken your, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I know when he, the quote that I read, your concern was betraying your country and your family. So now that family knows that you did that, have you had backlash, praise, a little bit of all of it? You know, I think that there are stories that are mine to share and there are stories that are not mine to share. And so I am going to pass on that part to honor that each person has their own experience. And I will say also for soldiers who go to war, they have one experience. Yeah, It's not what people think. (laughs) It's not what the movies say. And they almost get locked into that narrative. Yeah. They can't even be themselves because there's this one story that they have to agree with. And I also think that family members who stay home when a loved one is deployed, they also have their own experience. And so I have just been really trying to honor people by um, letting them tell their stories and me not. I appreciate that answer. I think that's really fair and a really good kind of a lesson for all of this that we you're making your choices for God. You're living for God and the other person they're they're also figuring out their story and response. And that's such a good lesson that shouldn't affect us and how we're living and who we're living for. So I appreciate that answer. Let's go back a little bit, if you don't mind, because one of the other life-changing things you talk about is meeting the woman that's coming and we don't have to share every detail, but you're going down the street and you see a woman welcoming, wanting you to come into her house. Share as much as you want to share about that because you talk about that you were never the same. That woman changed your life forever. So I feel like we have to share some of that if we're going to share your story adequately here. It was one just dusty, ordinary, hot Wednesday afternoon. And normally when it gets really, really hot, everybody just hides. They take naps. You just cannot be in the sunshine because... It is deathly in the desert. And I remember I was walking on this little dusty path and there wasn't anybody around. And normally soldiers, were, we always stay in pairs. It's a safety thing, battle buddy. And, um, and I didn't, I don't know why I had wandered away, but I was on this dusty little path. And all of a sudden I see, I hear this squeak of this like corrugated metal rusty door squeak open. Mm-hmm. And I look over And it's just shadowy, but I can see a woman. I can see the whites of her eyes. And then all of a sudden, I see the universal come here, hand wave, hand motion. And and all of a sudden, I just froze. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, I look around and I'm like, I'm by myself. (laughs) I look up at her. Why? Like, envision with me here. Like, I am, I'm an invading American soldier. They did not invite us. I've got a Kevlar on. I've got a weapon. I've got my bulletproof vest. Like, I have my battle rattle hanging off of me. And for her to invite me into the safety inside her home, I was like, this doesn't make sense. And I also knew that nobody knew where I was. So, what if this little lady was just bait? Mm-hmm. And I was going to walk in and there'll be the end behind the door and like nobody will hear from me again. And and that that is what was happening to American soldiers. Yeah. Um, 
But in this moment, I just froze and I knew everything in my training was like, keep walking. That is not safe. Stay awake, yeah. stay alive, yeah. do not do this. But at the very last second, I just felt like this fireworks in my chest. And I just felt like this, like, pay attention to this. Like, don't miss this, Diana. Mm-hmm. And in a minute, I just knew I was going to walk through there. Like, I was going to break with everything that I knew and all my self-protection. And I did it. And that day I walked into her house and her name is Om Hassan. And she just wrapped her arms around me and hugged me and walked me into her home. And I would sit on her rug with her grandchildren and her daughters um, as often as I could during my deployment. And the way that she she chose, like she walked towards me before she knew if I was trustworthy. Like she chose to trust me before yeah. she knew if yeah. I would hurt her or the yeah. people that she loved. Um, that's what changed my life. And that was that I would call it preemptive love. And mm-hmm. I feel like this is like how Jesus loved us on the cross. While we were yet still his enemies, he gave himself up for us in love. But I'd never seen anybody show do me. it. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Like for yeah. it. And I had a, you know, like this is in the middle of a war. And she did it. And that's why she changed my life. Like she showed me how to love like Jesus that I followed and I'll never, ever forget it because she was just this oxygen mask that I needed. Mm. Like in the middle of all this, she treated me like I was her family. Like I wasn't just another soldier, but I was a human being and I was her family. And if I wasn't doing well, then her kids weren't doing well. Yeah. And it just like absolutely tore down all these boxes I had of who the other was and why I didn't have to care about them. She was, um, she was, I was told she was the enemy. She was an Iraqi. She was a Muslim. She was right. Like all these things that I had been told, um, she was actually the hero of my story. And she's the reason why I love differently today. She's the reason my kids like know me as a fully alive mom instead Mm. of a PTSD kind of shaken shell. Yeah. She resurrected me. And I'll Mm. I'll, like, I never got to thank her. The last time I saw her, I didn't know would be the last time I got um, stationed somewhere else. And so she's the one person and if I could thank anyone on the planet for like changing, like her love, her self-sacrificing love, like yeah. changed me. Mm. My life is so different because she changed who I saw. Yeah. The enemy wasn't the enemy. And she yeah. gave me capacity to love. And now my kids, um, they think that Iraq is this magical place. Like they wish they're like bummed they can't be there. Yeah, yeah. They know that as this place that their mom went with a gun in her hand, she came back with friendship. Yeah. And she's just the most unlikely person. And she's still the most unlikely person. And when people read my book, they normally say two things. They say, I've never felt more connected to people that I see as different or other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I never felt more challenged that I want to love like Oma's. Yeah. 
Because your book gives us that human side. It gives us the, on the other end of who we're told not to like or accept. It gives us the real person there. And you share so many different stories about her and her family and the peace that you gave them. And you, you saying yes to that invitation to come in her house changed it all, changed your life. She changed your life, but you had to start with that saying yes to that. And that was scary and could have ended differently, but you knew that, that God wanted you to say yes to her invitation. And it's such a powerful example for us. So I'm trying, I'm hitting some highlights here. Um, One part that struck me, this would have been months after that, because you say Christmas Eve, I'm thinking if, so you talk about Christmas Eve, I was closer to where Jesus was born, but I felt further away from my faith than ever before. So did you still wrestle with your faith throughout that time there Was it a constant wrestling, trying to define? Tell me a little bit about that, more about that journey. From just a really young age, I, like God made sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I never wrestled with God as much. Like I knew, who I knew God to be was like all loving and this incredible parent, mother, father. um, But what I wrestled with again and again were people. Like I couldn't figure out how people would do what they would do to another person. And I grew up with that black and white view that just said that I was the good guy. So wherever Mm -hmm. I showed up, if I was automatically the good guy, then I didn't even have to, I didn't have to acknowledge my actions or my consequences. The other person was just the bad guy. Yeah. And so what I wrestled with was how can human beings wage war on each other? How can they torture each other? Like, like people who have no connection to God know it's wrong. Like they just know to hurt another person like that is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It defies, it defiles life and your own humanity. And so I was watching people wearing my same uniform do really awful things that weren't okay. And in fact, they were against the rules for our own rules of being soldiers. And so all of a sudden, this idea that I was the good guy wasn't true. And then all of a sudden, if like people wearing my uniform were doing bad things, then maybe the people on the other side, maybe they weren't automatically the bad guy. So like I wrestled with violence. I wrestled with what soldiers did that was never accounted for and what wasn't okay. And I think that was what was so hard for me. I somehow, I always never really, I always thought God was good. Like God was good, but man, these human beings, God, bring back the ark. You got to start over because I don't see this changing. And so I think I wrestled with my complicity in violence, what my country was doing with the things that that were happening that weren't, um, weren't okay. So that wrestle always, but I felt like God was like the only good one in it. (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. like, wow, (laughs) you know, Like you're good, but oh my gosh, like all the rest of us, how can we do this? Right. And I think that's what starts that whole faith deconstruction journey is when you start hearing, it's one thing to be told these certain black and white things, but then when you start hearing the other stories and the real people, again, that's what starts the wrestling and the deconstruction. And you were, you just happened to be in a war zone in another country when it really hit you in the face. And I want to talk about... 
like I said, in your book, you share so much more, many more of your stories there and peacemaking um, while you're in Iraq. Then you also talk about getting, getting that lucky ticket to come home 397 days later. Did you have any idea when you would be coming home? Like, okay, I don't know how that works. So you go, you don't know how long. We never did. And I don't think anyone did because the reason they put troops there was because there were weapons of mass destruction. And then I found out there were no weapons of mass destructions and they did not call everybody home. We stayed. So we really never, like I, I was there when Saddam was captured, still didn't go home. <laughs> like it was like this, we never, never, never knew until the week before when we got orders to convoy up to the air base and wait for a plane home. So we only knew seven days that we were going to get to go and actually wait. And so you share, uh, you know, you felt like you had that lucky ticket to come home. But when you got home, you realized this is just as hard or harder than when I was deployed and landed in another country. So share as much, I mean, we can, I can only imagine, and I'm sure everybody would think, yeah, that has got to be hard. That war changes you coming home. People don't, haven't seen and experienced what you have, but you share just a little bit about just how hard that was to actually come home and back to the life you lived before. I, the truest thing I can say is that it's still hard. Yeah. It is still really hard because I'm still that same person, you know? And I think that I went to war and had this experience and everybody I knew, their world was the same and it was not translatable. And because less than 1% of Americans have ever served, and that's not even, a lot of people serve and they never go to combat. So there's such a disconnect and then there's such a hero worship of war. Mm. Like people love to read books, they love to watch movies. And so they almost live in this hallmark world. So when you have a real human being experience real war, there's no room for that. Right. And I know when soldiers came back from Vietnam, many who were drafted, they said, like, we're not doing what we say we're doing there. And they en masse said, this is not worthy, nor does this have integrity for our country. We should not yeah. be doing this. And that was really hard in the country. And so I think Iraq war was much smaller. And so, but I still think soldiers experience things and there's not a lot of room for that narrative where somebody is different or maybe it's not your 30 seconds that you see on TV. Like, yeah. um, so I think that was really, really hard. I think there's a lot that I felt like I was erased why? Because I didn't want, I didn't, I needed to belong. Like I just did. It was a tough time. I think I just needed, there was just a lot to sort out. But I will say that becoming a peacemaker in war was, I mean, it was deathly, but it was simple. Like I absolutely knew what I would do and I knew what I wouldn't. And that's how I showed up in every day. And then coming home and being a peacemaker as a Christian in my neighborhood as a mom, that has been really, really hard because I found out that people love their violence. (laughs) Like they really, it's kind of a thing that if I, it is much harder for me to be a peacemaker here. It's much harder, but I know that being able to see Om Hassan in war, like reimagine the person I see as an enemy, allowed me to reimagine the people that I didn't see it in my own neighborhood. Um, I didn't see people who 
voted differently. I didn't see people who worshiped differently. I didn't see people who were unsheltered or incarcerated mm-hmm. or a minority. And so I think it's been the best thing ever for me and my family, but it's also really, there's just a lot of tension. And so people, people read my book and they're like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, I know, but the crazy thing is it's still me. Like I still feel fear. I still feel pain from these stories. But the miracle of it was when I was going through a lot of these things, I felt super alone. But when people read my book and they're in the story with me, they're like, Diana, do you remember that one time? And I'm like, oh, I don't feel so alone anymore. Like, I feel like somehow God's rewritten that story where when people, I feel like they are tender and they're in these really tender parts with me. Yeah. And it somehow makes me feel like the miracles that I now feel like I have community in the places that were so achingly lonely. Yeah. One of the most powerful quotes in your book, you said, I often felt, I often feel safer surrounding myself with people who carry scars because they are more tender with mine. That just hit me like a ton of bricks of, yeah. And that's, that's what you've carried with you with your story and sharing your story and the scars and the hard parts helps other people to, to share theirs and to feel it together and to be community. I also think what's so profound is the story in Iraq that God wrote in your life you've carried and it's rippled through to your boy's story because that to me came across as a, your peacemaking mission here was within your family. What are we going to do? I have left the quote war zone, but I've come home to another one. And that's what I want to tell people is don't think you can't relate to this book because you haven't fought in a war because we're living in one here with the racism, with the, all the prejudices, with the homophobia, we've got it all here. And how, how are we living as peacekeepers? And that is your mission now, really. And the first, I don't know, I would say not even the first third of the book is in the war, but yeah. the whole, so the majority of the whole book is how we live here. And one of the stories is from six years ago when my family went to our very first Black Lives Matter march when Trevon Martin was killed and Michael Brown. And so the really amazing thing is for a lot of people, George Floyd was their wake up. And the beautiful thing is that there you're getting to read a little family story of our, of our wake up, which only says like, we will all have our wake up and it'll be awkward and painful and you and new and you won't feel like you know what you're doing. Like my first time, I had a preschooler and a kindergartner, and they had juice boxes in their pockets. Yeah. Um, and we sang this little light of mine as we walked yeah. down the hill with um Michael Brown's name. And so I hope that it just shows people there are ordinary everyday ways that we show up and we actually wage peace, and our kids are depending on us. Um, our marginalized brothers and sisters are waiting for us to care and it creates such beautiful things. And, um, and I think now's the time, now's the time to lean in. Now's the time. And even the late great John Lewis, the Senator, he had a wake up call. He wasn't just born this great civil rights hero. He said that his wake up call was um, Emmett Till. And so if John Lewis had a wake up, then no yeah. shame. Yeah. Like 
whenever we do, it's a yes. And it's a thank you, God. And you are changing the trajectory of our communities when your kids start to participate. And I've seen it. And I'm really excited that parenting, (laughs) parenting can be different. And our kids are part of our communities and they're going to find so much knowledge and power and value because they're what we're doing this for. And you are such an example and inspiration. I know we spoke earlier, like there, we feel like there's not a lot out there of the examples, but you are, and you're living, you're living out this message every day with how you're raising your boys. And another quote, like I said, I want to read your book again, because I highlighted so many quotes. I'm like, she is... She is full of wisdom. You said, when hate is loud, love cannot be silent. And that just struck me too, because I feel like we get, sometimes we can get a message from the church, our faith community that no, don't, don't be too loud. Don't protest. Don't create the controversy or disruption. But that's so not true. That's not what love is. And when we say love your neighbor, it's not just be silent and passive. It is speaking out against the hate or showing up for the marches. And there's just, there's a lot there, but that is very powerful. So one of the things on your website that I wanted to go through, because I know people don't always go check out all the details of websites. um, You have a waging peace manifesto and I loved it. It's so good. I'm going to read the four things. And then can we, you just talk briefly about each of them and then we'll tell people where to find them because I think this is the most powerful. I think we want tangible like to-do lists and here's one for everybody. So one, find erase stories. Two, find your complicity. Three, find your enemies. And four, find justice. Let's talk about those quickly, but then people can go to the website and find more details. So this is the Waging Peace Manifesto. What do you mean by finding erase stories? Well, what I want people, what I want you listeners to know is that this is absolutely for you, that you don't need to know anything more. You don't need to like read the book. This Waging Peace Manifesto is the most beautiful beginning because when we begin, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we're going to move an inch or a mile. I think our beginnings are the most bravest, beautiful moments. And so I'll ask you to print this out on your fridge and just say, you know, like I, Diana, am beginning because we know it's true. That first step is the only step that matters. So this, these are four simple things, but all I want you to do is do one, which is print it out, put it on your fridge. And the first one is find a race stories. And every place that we live, I live on tribal land, there are stories of marginalized people and they're present and they've been erased through history. That's part of the, the cost of white supremacy is that we don't know these things because they have been deleted and erased. And in order to be a peacemaker, we have to find the stories that are missing. And there's an indigenous leader that says that We cannot have a common memory until we cannot have true community until we share a common memory. So for people in my community, like just go to the, go to the library. They'll tell you about where you live and what happened there. So in my community, there is, there were Indian boarding schools. There has been um, lots of race stories for native folks. And there also was a lynching. Just find out where you live so that find the race stories. You could Google that. You don't even have to see another human being if you don't want to right. for that. That's right. Um, and what's the next one? Find your complicity. Yes. So once you read these stories, I firmly believe that we cannot wage peace until we're willing to find out where we are in the story. Like we're not Switzerland. I think we like to sit on the bench 
and kind of like blow the whistle on each side. But the truth is, is that as many ancestors as my indigenous family and friends talk about, then I also have ancestors and we get to learn the stories that we're proud of. And we also get to learn the stories that we're not proud of. Right. And so I think we just have to find our complicity. So like, look at where you live and look at what's happened and then look at who, where have your people been in that? Right. Um, Because I think we really do belong to each other, which means we need to start finding ourselves within it instead of standing on the outside, kind of playing like the referee. Right. So then the next is find your enemies. I love this. One. I do too. I was going to say we can skip over. I'm like, no, we can't because we need to talk about this. Mostly because I feel like that was the game changer for me. The mm-hmm. first time when I actually had to look my enemy in the face and realize that I've been told to see them as an enemy, mm-hmm. uh, that was me owning my violence. And I think I know it's a linchpin. If we can own that our people or our culture or our family or our friends has told us that these this certain group of people, maybe they're not contributing. Maybe you don't want your kids to go to school with them. Maybe you think that they're actually causing problems in your city, that yeah. you're not happy that they're in your city, or we don't want any more of them, um, or they're criminals, or um, they aren't good workers, um, or their character isn't good. So I think that that mirror, I think, is so, so freeing. And yes. once we can do the work to say, who who do I see? Or, you know, it's safer. Who have I been told That's to right. see as my enemy? And if enemy is too strong, who I've been told to see as suspect? Like, I'm not sure they're good. Yeah. I'm not sure they want good things. And then some people will be like, well, I don't have any enemies. <laughs> Second question is, doesn't mean that other people don't see you as an enemy. Other people might fear you. Like I'm a mother of a black boy. I fear people. Yeah. Other people may not, but I do. So finding out that other people may see you as an enemy is also this beautiful game changing launch pad. Okay. Find justice. This is so big and broad. So let's narrow this down to people that might be like, what? Like that's a lot. Right. So this is my all time favorite one. And the tagline for this is just show up. So justice is where the crooked gets made straight, where the wrongs get made right. And so everybody can agree that the world is not perfect. So start to show up for people who are experiencing violence, intimidation, mostly people on the margins. And you may not know that if you're a majority culture, you might have no idea that these communities are having these things happen to their kids. So justice, just start showing up. You don't have to know anything. You do not need agreement. Like, ain't nobody need your agreement. Yeah, <laughs> like, we yeah. just need our bodies. Because once we show up, fear can't stand proximity. And to be kind to yourself, you can't know what you don't know. So give yourself some grace. And, right. and, and the beautiful thing is just show up with your kids, stand in the back, and be there. Because the, these marginalized communities are really great teachers. They know mm-hmm. the story. And they know what's happening and they know what the answer is. So I don't want to teach my kids because I actually don't know. So bringing them to these events and using the community to teach my kids has been like the best parent gift ever of like, 
let the elders in your community show your kids what's true and what they can be part of. And every time I bring my kids to something, they leave like more empowered, more like, yeah. yeah. (laughs) That was powerful in your book when you shared, I think it was maybe you all went to a mosque, but you looked at your son thinking you were going to see him being terrified at the experience, but he just had a sense of peace and fulfillment. And like, this is where he was supposed to be. And that spoke so loudly. Like we underestimate what we can expose our kids to or what, where we can show up with them. And I think that's such a powerful moment. It's a game changer. And mm-hmm. kids are so much more brave and they have so much <sighs> more I- like idealism. Like I just talked to my kid's middle school teacher. She's like, oh, I love middle schoolers because they're so idealistic. They know what's right and true and they're not yeah. back by yeah. pessimism or cynicism or allegiances to like, well, we couldn't change anything. So I think that your kids, one, they... They're like a puppy. They'll make friends for you, which is always nice when you're going somewhere new and awkward where you don't know. I think the ladies in the mosque fed my kids like 26 cookies. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, kids are so brave and have so much to teach us. That's like my 18 year old. Like she was 17 at the time, but she went to all the Black Lives Matter. What do we say? We just say protests. I'm like, I'm going to edit that out. Do we say protests? Um, You can. Marches. Or vigils. Vigils. Okay. She went to all of them and I was terrified for her. And I'm like, where is this fear coming from? I mean, it just helped. I mean, it really makes you examine and why doesn't she have it? So children can be our greatest teachers too in all of this. Diana, where can you be found for people that want to get in more information on you, your book, the manifesto is on your website. Tell folks where they can connect with you. Easiest way to get to my website is wagingpeacebook.com. Com, and that'll drop you on our website. My website is Diana Ostrike, and it's a little bit of a ridiculous married last name spelling. And so I do not <laughs> want to uh, challenge anyone on that, okay. but Diana Ostrike at Instagram. And also, I really want to honor that social media may not be a place that a lot of people want to be right now. And yeah. so I am sending what I would post on social media directly to people through my newsletter. So if you would rather not scroll to stay up to date, um, please join on my newsletter crew. And we're also doing a book club in January. So if you'd like to do a Wade and Peace book club together, we're going to grab some people and then we'll definitely have, uh, you'll get to ask me some questions and we'll get to do a call and just. I was actually going to ask you about the book club after we wrapped up, but since you brought it up, I'm going to ask you because in the conversation. So is the book club, like we're joining it through your site, your organization, or are you wanting people just to start their own little book clubs? Well, you can do both and for some people, they already have their book clubs. So then I will just give you book, book discussion questions and the so and just kind of like, you know, get excited for you. Okay. And then, and you can also ask me to do a zoom call with your book club if you'd like. Which is so huge. I saw that. I had to like read it twice. That is a brilliant idea that she's doing. I love that. Like I've gotten to bop in on people's book clubs and it's just been like the most fun thing about COVID is I'm getting to bop in with people from all across the country. Uh uh It's just been really fun. So you can do your own. Okay. Um, Also, I'm doing one with me. Okay. So if you want to join the book club with me, we'll do one group um, Zoom call where we all get to meet and chat and ask. That's way cool. 
Okay. Well, I've never been in a book club or led a book club. I've led tons of Bible studies, but I'm, I'm thinking about either leading or joining this one because I love this book so much. And um, I think it is just, there's so much there to go with. So I'm thinking about that one. So people can get the information on your website with that. And on your website, you have a book giveaway too, that I want to let people know about. It's not on Instagram. You can enter through your website, right? Yeah. And you okay. actually get a really cool gift basket. It's a book and a mug and a pine candle because I'm from Minnesota and it's the land of the pine trees. Okay. It's perfect. And you can go through your website also to buy your book and you can get an autographed copy if you buy it on there and, and all of that, right? Like the elves. So if you want to support a local author and support stories of peace, um, please buy from me. I think that we want more women writers and it's hard to get published but also we need people to support our stories and support peace so please um put your support into action on my website and um the book is a great one people buy it for a lot of family and friends (laughs) where they kind of want to make a point Uh but they don't want to make a point but they want the other person It's, it's a perfect, it's a perfect Christmas gift. So we'll encourage people. We'll link up everything you mentioned on the show notes, Diana, and we'll encourage people to go, go get the book and then join a book club in January. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you. Okay. So much. Gosh, yeah. thank you for sharing so much. I appreciate just you being here and you giving your time today. Thank you for listening in on this episode and Diana's story. I can't encourage you enough to get her book, Waging Peace. It's just a beautiful and gut-riching memoir, and I know will inspire you to choose love over fear. As always, the links we mentioned in this episode, including the Waging Peace Manifesto, will be in the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com. Finally, if you haven't left a review for the podcast on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you would. I want to continue to make this podcast available without advertisements, and reviews help other folks find the podcast more easily.